What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another fantastic episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother, Danny, and I'm here with my big brother, Sean. You know what day it is, Danny? Well, it's Friday, you know, release day for us, but it's something de- deeper than that, huh? A little deeper. It's Friday the 13th, Danny. And you know what that means? We're talking about a Friday the 13th movie? Not just any Friday the 13th movie, but the first. You know, this is our first Friday the 13th as Fraternity hosts. And one could say that covering Friday the 13th on this date isn't the most original idea. But if this movie proved anything, it's that you don't have to be that original to still be a great idea. So from here on out, every Friday the 13th will be special. Because we will be covering each installment of the franchise in order. We're kicking things off with the original movie tonight. And this is the second half of our two-week 80s mayhem spectacular. And it's so fitting that it culminates here on Friday the 13th before we take a short break. Now, I've looked deep into our future, Danny. This is the only Friday the 13th this year. But over the next few years, we're going to get two every year. And it's actually pretty great because if everything goes according to plan, we will be wrapping up the original series in 2028. Well, that's quite a long way from now, but hey, we got to get started at some point, so. So I just have to ask, Danny, had you ever seen this movie? I had not seen the original Friday the 13th. I haven't seen any Friday the 13th movie for that matter. Outside of maybe you showing me certain kills from whatever movie it happens to be from. Other than that, it's just totally escaped me. I have played the Friday the 13th, the game, with you before, and that was fun. (laughs) But as for watching the movies, this is a first time. Not to say I don't know a lot about the franchise, and I feel like everyone knows who the killer is in this original film and how it kind of goes, but I'm trying to come at it from a point of view of not thinking about the later releases and just taking this film as it is. Awesome. Well, I think you owe it to our listeners to remain a Friday the 13th virgin as we go through each installment because you're rare blood at this point, Danny. And (laughs) you are really getting fresh perspectives from Danny here on Friday the 13th. And that is special in this day and age. Yeah, it's like uh, someone doesn't know Star Wars, showing that to them for the first time. Getting their raw reaction is very rare. And, you know, we kind of have the same thing going for us over here with me getting into these franchises that are really the juggernauts of the horror genre. And I haven't seen a lot of them. So I think it's a lot of fun to go into it totally blind and totally fresh. And We'll see what my opinions may be. Definitely. And I am looking forward to it. And thanks for reminding me of our time spent on Friday the 13th, the game. Shout out to (laughs) 
all our friends, Carrie and Alexander and everyone else who used to play with us. But let's get into story time, shall we? Sure thing. Let's go. Growing up in the era of horror that I did, I feel like you were just naturally aware of Freddy and Jason. It didn't matter if you had seen the movies or not. I was born in 1984, and I like to think that that's one of the reasons I have such a natural affinity for the slasher genre. After all, Freddy was born and Jason died that year. These characters, as we all know, are still pop culture icons today. But I don't think the fervor or cultural penetration is anywhere near as potent as it was in the late 80s and early 90s. It was a special time that unexpectedly began to wane. Their spotlight relevance was soon to fade, but that's where kids born in the mid-80s like myself and other kids born in the video rental store days come into play. We may not have gotten to experience the initial theatrical runs of these movies, but we loved them all the same. And I would argue that it's this generation that has really kept these characters alive. It wasn't a fad for us. It was a way of life. We even had a sense of ownership and a true connection to these movies on home video. One of the first VHS films I ever, ever bought was Jason Lives. Like I said, I just had this natural knowledge of these movies and the character of Jason. By the time I was able to really dive into these movies, they were already Jason movies as far as I understood them. I can't recall how I saw my first Friday the 13th movie. It could have been rentals, or I could have caught bits and pieces on TV. I know I definitely didn't see these movies in order. I didn't have a good grasp on the overarching storyline. Living Jason, Zombie Jason, Fake Jason, No Jason. It really didn't make any difference to me. I just simply loved slasher movies. And these are top-tier slasher flicks. I would say that No Jason did kind of matter to me. I do remember eventually settling down and watching the original when I was still a real young kid. It was good, but I had already seen so much of Jason that it definitely felt lacking. The story beats, the gore, the kills, it was all there. But it wouldn't be until much later in my life when the benefit of older age would truly help me appreciate what a masterful slasher this original movie is. It's a great slasher movie, an imitator, of course, but an imitator that zigged and zagged its way to becoming the imitated. And when you strip away the baggage of the franchise, it's really incredible what a great piece of standalone slasher cinema this is. So let's not waste any more time and dive right into Friday the 13th. But before that, just wanted to say you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle's at Fraternity. That's at Fraternity. Go over there, like us, retweet us. Come say hi in our DM. Send us a message. Anything at all. We'd love to interact with you. We have an email, Fraternity at gmail.com. That's Fraternity at gmail.com. Send us an email, questions, comments, anything at all. We'll respond to you. We'd love to interact with anyone in the community. And we have a YouTube channel. Go over to YouTube, type in Fraternity in the search bar, and our channel will show up where we upload 
episodes of the show over there if that's how you like to digest your weekly horror podcast over on YouTube. You can do that with Fraternity. So you have options here if you're a fan. Here's a question of the week. What social media do you want Fraternity to get into? Is it TikTok, Instagram? Let us know because we want to reach out and know where the horror community is thriving. I think Twitter has been really great for us, but I'd be interested in hearing where else the horror community has been reaching its claws into in the social media net space. So let us know that. We're very interested in hearing where you want Fraternity to expand into. So Danny, it's Camp Crystal Lake, 1958. An unseen figure stalks among the cabins full of sleeping children as we see wholesome goody-two-shoes counselors sing songs by the fireplace. Not long afterward, we learn these counselors aren't as wholesome as they first appear, as two of them sneak off to fool around in a cabin. Before their pants come off, though, or all of the buttons on the girl's top are undone, they realize they aren't alone. The boy fidgets with his zipper, swearing they weren't doing anything wrong before he's brutally stabbed in the stomach. He falls over, clenching the wound in his stomach as blood pours from his mouth. The girl attempts to get away from this unseen assailant, but finds herself cornered, and before long, screaming in terror as she's killed by a freezing frame. And so begins the movie that would go on to spawn nine sequels, a crossover, and a remake. <laughs> All with this little intro scene here. What a way to start a franchise. Not many can do it, but Friday the 13th succeeded. One thing I've always liked about these early Friday the 13th movies, too, is the title cards. And this original is pretty good, too, as the title rushes towards the screen and shatters a pane of glass. As that unrelenting Harry Manfredini score just comes to life. Yeah, it's great. After the credits, we cut to the present and meet a girl named Annie as she walks through the town outside of Camp Crystal Lake. She enters a diner and asks for a ride. One of the patrons refers to the camp as Camp Blood before a trucker offers her a lift. And as they leave the diner, we meet who is probably still to this day the most iconic harbinger of doom in a slasher. Crazy Ralph, Danny. You'll never come back again. It's got a death curse. <laughs> You're going to Camp Blood, ain't ya? <laughs> <laughs> the trucker writes off the musings of Crazy Ralph, but it isn't long into their drive that he too starts to warn Annie that she should quit and get out while she still can. He informs her of the murders we witnessed before mentioning a young boy that had drowned a year prior to that. Multiple fires. Bad water. But despite all these warnings, our fake-out final girl, you could say, is undeterred. Yeah, she's writing it off as, you know, ghost stories that the town clings on to. Yeah, I've always enjoyed these opening scenes because they do a pretty good job of setting up this swerve with Annie's fast-approaching death, while also giving us a lot more information in regards to the camp and all the troubles that plagued it. Like, what did you think? Did you think Annie was going to be a more substantial character? Yeah, I definitely thought she was, you know, as you said, going to be our final girl here. And it was shocking to see her 
meet her demise, you know, 10, 15 minutes into the film. And yeah, I like this scene too, because, you know, the truck driver is given all this info about how what happened at Camp Crystal Lake. And he just offhandedly mentions like, oh, a boy drowned there. Two people died. And when you think about it, it's like that boy drowning becomes so important to the story. But here it's just an offhand thing. And I always love that in a film when something that seems like an offhand remark just becomes so much more important later on narratively. And how important it would truly become, huh? (laughs) Exactly. Like I said, like, it's so interesting to think how many threads are here that continue on in the rest of the franchise, but when they were writing it, I really doubt they were thinking about any of that. Right. It's just really such a fascinating study at what can become of a franchise and that immediate success and the future of something like that. It's kind of mind-boggling. Definitely. You know... A lot of it has to come down to luck, too, right? (laughs) Exactly. We then meet Jack, Marcy, and Ned. They're a trio of counselors also en route to the camp. And once they arrive, we meet the owner, Steve, and the counselors who have already arrived, Alice, Brenda, and Bill. I've always been a bit confused by the relationship between Steve and Alice. I think it's because the dialogue or acting is a bit off. But it gives the impression that they're lovers, maybe. But it also comes across like they've basically just met. It's pretty weird. What did you think? Um, I took it as Steve was kind of hitting on, on Alice. You know, hitting on his camp, his younger camp counselors. You know, <laughs> he's got a thing for her. But yeah, it's it's not quite clear. My assumption was that Steve had a thing for her. Right on. So, we all know why we're here, but over the next several scenes, we're going to get some humanizing hangouts and hijinks with our cast of young and beautiful counselors, including Kevin Bacon in a Speedo, Danny. (laughs) I saw his bacon pits. (laughs) All the while, too, we get some fantastic POV stalker shots looking at all of this action taking place. We get a bit where Brenda setting up the archery range and Ned shoots an arrow through the target while she's unaware and standing right next to it, startling her. Yeah, Ned's a big goofball from shooting arrows at unsuspecting girls to wearing Native American headdresses and having an arguably racist scene. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to bring this scene up because we covered Scream in our 2022 premiere episode and we discussed the Randy-approved rules to survive a slasher film. Do you want to go back over those rules, Danny? Let me see. You can't drink or smoke, right? Right. Can't have sex. Big no-no. Big no-no. And you can never say you'll be right back because you won't be back. I think that's all three, right? You got it. But there's one rule that I rarely hear mentioned, and we're about to witness its first instance here. We actually get this rule broken twice, and it always leads to certain death. Under no circumstances can you do impressions of actors or quotes from other movies. 
because <laughs> Ned does the you know you're beautiful when you're angry sweetheart line here and that's a death sentence dude I'm telling you you cannot do it right on makes makes total sense <laughs> there are many instances of this act resulting in your gruesome death throughout slasher movies from the early 80s and beyond and you better believe that here at Fraternity, we will point out every time this unwritten rule gets broken. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you heard it here first. The fourth unwritten rule of a horror movie, don't do celebrity impressions because you will die. <laughs> <laughs> I think that means we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> After that scene, it's been almost 20 minutes since our last kill, so... It's time to go rejoin Annie on her doomed trek to Camp Crystal Lake. We see a jeep pick her up and drive her towards the camp. But Annie starts to worry when the driver flies past the road that leads to the camp. She opines that she thinks they'd better stop. But the driver mashes the accelerator down instead, forcing Annie to leap from the jeep as it speeds down the road. The driver slams the brakes and backs up the catch up with her. And we watch Annie limp into the woods, and she attempts to escape this unseen stalker. Unfortunately for her, this stalker knows these woods awfully well and cuts her off. And after Annie stumbles to the ground, she gets back up and backs away from the killer. She backs up into a tree and finds herself trapped as the killer lifts a knife to her throat and slashes it. It's unfortunate that most of the kills in this movie are off-screen, but this is a pretty good on-screen throat slashing here. Yeah, I would agree. Annie sells it well when she's gasping for air as her throat is slit. And I like that this death signifies that nobody in this film is safe. You know, because up to this point, we were treating Annie like she was the main character. And here she is, dying in the forest. And I like, too, that we get a look at the killer's shoes and pants. But it also just makes things all the more unknown, because those really aren't any clues to who this could be. Yeah, very generic, very androgynous clothes, so you really don't know, right? But yeah, this is a very solid death, courtesy of Tom Savini. And like you said, it's unexpected. It's a great fake out here. And I love the way you said it really puts into focus that nobody in this movie is safe. Back at camp, our counselors decide to go for a swim or lounge out by the water. And this is where we get Kevin Bacon's bacon bits in a Speedo. Who wore, <laughs> who wore their bathing suit better, Danny? Marcy or Kevin Bacon? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this scene just really serves to show off all of these young, hot teenage bodies. And of course, we get the goof Ned pretending to drown as the killer watches from the woods. And I think we all know why Ned really has to die now, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's too horny. <laughs> <laughs> I really do enjoy all of these moments. We even get the snake in Annie's cabin scene where everyone gets ineptly involved in killing the snake. That poor snake. Yeah. But I guess it lived on eternally in this film. <laughs> then a police officer shows up and harasses the counselors. And it ends up that he's looking for crazy Ralph, who's apparently drunk and heading to the camp to harbinger it up some more. <laughs> I like that this scene also shows how inept the cops are in this town, and that 
when shit hits the fan, these counselors are truly going to be on their own. Smoke? I don't smoke. Causes cancer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I will say this about Friday the 13th, too. I'm going to point it out later on, but all of these little bit characters really give it their all, don't they? <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all good fun. It's all memorable. Yeah, Crazy Ralph winds up startling Alice in the kitchen, and Marcy and Ned run in after she screams, and he gives them his warnings before he hops on his bike and pedals off. So we won't see Crazy Ralph again until the sequel, Danny. Well, I'm glad to hear he's in the sequel. That would be one character I wouldn't expect for them to bring back. You gotta pad the body count for number two, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, it starts to get dark and cloudy. And Marcy and Jack spend some time together as Ned watches from a distance. He plays around before noticing someone standing in the doorway of one of the cabins, and he decides to investigate. But once it starts to rain, Jack and Marcy run to the same cabin, and things are about to get wet, but not because of the rain, Danny. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So Marcy and Jack have sex while the other counselors decide to play Strip Monopoly. I don't think the (laughs) promise of seeing some naked girls could get me to play Monopoly, though. Fuck that game. Yeah, the promise of titty in maybe two or three hours. Not that interested. (laughs) Now, I know this isn't exclusive to Friday the 13th, but it seems to be pretty prevalent. And I just can't stand it. Why do we have to hear the sloppy wet kissing in these movies? (laughs) like is the boom mic up kevin bacon's ass (laughs) (laughs) oh i didn't even notice it so i I guess i'm not bothered by it (laughs) i don't know it drives me insane and (laughs) oh stop stop just wait until number four in two years, Danny, and you'll really hear it. <laughs> oh, oh, can't wait. <laughs> this sex scene winds up being pretty tame and lame, though, but we get this great moment where we see Ned is actually dead on the top bunk. This flash of lightning reveals his slit throat to us as Marcy moans from the bunk below. And if there's one thing faker than Ned's slit throat, it's Marcy's moaning (laughs) sorry kevin (laughs) she's faking it (laughs) so marcy winds up heading for the bathroom leaving poor little jack all alone and jack sparks up a joint but before he can exhale a drop of blood splashes on his face he goes to wipe at it but we learn that the killer has been hiding under the bed this entire time as their hand swings up to hold jack in place as they force an arrow up through the mattress And right through Jack's neck. Probably one of the most iconic slasher kills from the 80s. What did you think of this, Danny? Yeah, well, this is one of the kills I had seen before, just offhand or whatever. But I think it's such a great stinger, too, because you almost can't predict when it's coming. And I love that drop of blood that hits him on the forehead and... Before he even has time to react to it, he's just grabbed from behind and stabbed. So it all works really well, and I really enjoy this kill. Unfortunately, this is our final on-screen counselor kill, but it is pretty damn good. 
fake body aside, <laughs> you know, <laughs> giraffe neck aside. <laughs> yeah, the effects are great. We see that arrow pierce up through the flesh and we get some nice blood spurts. But then we cut to Marcy in the bathroom, moving about in nothing more than her tiny shirt and panties. She begins to hear sounds in the building with her. She snoops around, pulling shower curtains open to no avail, but she's made the mistake of imitating an actress too, Danny. So you know what that means, right? You're dead! (laughs) She pulls the shower curtain open to no avail, but we see the shadow of an axe being raised behind her. And she turns around in time to simply scream, wince, and take this axe to the face. I love how the axe comes crashing down and knocks that light fixture on its way down and it's swinging. We may not get to see this kill, but we see Marcy's body crash against the wall and slide down to the floor with the axe embedded in her face. And I think that's pretty great. (laughs) Yeah, the axe in Marcy's face... Deeply embedded in there is more than enough worth the price of admission, if you ask me. <laughs> and then there were three, Danny. Well, four, if you want to count Steve, but who's counting Steve? <laughs> Be back after lunch, my ass, Steve. <laughs> I know. I do like this brief scene in the diner, though, because like I said before, these bit characters give it their all and this old lady playing the waitress just goes all in (laughs) she may be in a bit part but she plans on getting her 15 minutes of fame right what do i owe you oh a night on the town steve (laughs) (laughs) so steve is gonna wind up breaking down and having to catch a lift back to the camp for one of the police officers But meanwhile, our game of Strip Monopoly has been interrupted, and the three counselors have gone their separate ways. There's a great bit with Brenda in the bathrooms brushing her teeth, and we see the hand of the killer pulling a shower curtain back ever so slightly to take a peek at her. And later on, while alone in her cabin, Brenda hears the sound of a little boy crying out for help, and she wanders out into the rain in her nightgown to investigate. She follows the voice to the archery range, where the spotlights suddenly turn on and blind her. She frantically looks around, but we don't see what happens. We only hear a blood-curdling scream. Yeah, I like this little hint here, you know, because she hears a little boy or a young child calling for help. And you're like, huh, who could be making that noise? But in the end, when you realize who's doing it, it all makes sense. And I do like... We got some decent foreshadowing earlier when Ned shot the arrow at Brenda on the archery range, and that just happens to be where she dies, too. So that was neat. Yeah, it's really such a shame because neither of us can truly ever experience this movie without knowing, you know what I mean? (laughs) Exactly. But you really have to wonder what people were thinking Without that knowledge, when they hear this child screaming out, you know? Yeah, totally. So Alice and Bill are the only ones left. And amazingly, they do just about everything right for a while. They stick together, search for the others. They find the bloody axe that has been placed in Brenda's bed for some reason. 
They go to the office. They attempt to make phone calls, but the phone line has been cut. They try to leave in Jack's truck, but it doesn't start. Bill is trying his best to keep Alice calm during the situation. And Friday the 13th is really unlucky because Steve loses his ride when the officer is called to respond to an accident involving trapped passengers and fatalities. And I love how this signifies that no cavalry is coming. And neither is Steve, Danny. Because as he approaches the camp, someone blasts him in the face with a flashlight from behind the Camp Crystal Lake sign. He questions who it is as the obscured figure approaches. And then there's this brief moment of recognition as Steve says, Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? Before getting stabbed in the chest. Yeah, that's another thing that was so interesting to me is that we do establish that the killer is someone that Steve is familiar with. So it's like, who could this be? Like you said, what was the audience thinking when they were watching this in the theater for the first time with, you know, no sequels to ponder about and Jason not being the pop culture icon that he is today? It's really interesting. And yeah, I do envy people that just got to witness this movie, you know, for the first time. Yeah. Definitely. I can't agree more, man. Like, it's frustrating, you know, because I feel like I can still enjoy this movie. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners feel the same way. You know, I wonder how many of us were cheated out of this. And I'd say at this point, it was most of us. Right. Yeah. I love that shot, too, when Bill and Alice go into the office and they're trying to use the phone and the camera is slowly panning over and then it shows that the phone line was cut yeah that's a great shot i love that too i i kept looking at that shot when i was watching this for this podcast (laughs) (laughs) glad you brought that shot up alice and bill finally get separated when the generator shuts off and bill lights a couple lanterns and goes to inspect the generator and as you can probably guess that's the last we're gonna see of old bill <laughs> of poor old bill <laughs> alive anyway <laughs> the killer does a pretty nasty number on bill wouldn't you agree yeah bill kind of got the worst of it <laughs> definitely we see alice wake up from a nightmare and she goes to find bill and she finds him all right And he's hanging from the generator room door with multiple arrows piercing through him and holding him up there. There's even an arrow through his eye. And if all the arrows weren't enough, he too has had his throat slit. So, pretty brutal stuff here. (laughs) Being shot with those arrows wasn't enough. (laughs) I really like that scene where Alice wakes up and... She's just so nervous, like she's making coffee, but she's just so antsy, you know, she just can't stop thinking about where is Bill before she finally decides to go out and look for him and find his body. But those those little scenes with Alice alone are just so effective in just capturing that nervousness in the film. Yeah, she did a really poor job of putting that lid back on the coffee. I was like, who (laughs) taught you how to put a lid on, girl? I know. I was like, uh, we can't do another take of that. <laughs> <laughs> so Alice runs back to the main cabin and she barricades herself inside. You know, Halloween started the trope where the killer hides the victims in creative ways and the final girl gets startled by them. 
And while Friday the 13th definitely borrows that, and it's coming up pretty shortly, it also creates its own trope of throwing the dead bodies through windows at the final girl. (laughs) At this point, I know you haven't seen the other movies, but at this point, it's a classic Friday the 13th move. And we get it here for the first time when the killer throws Brenda's lifeless body into the kitchen at Alice. What a great and effective, if not impractical, way to startle your would-be victim. (laughs) (laughs) Alice then notices a Jeep pulling up, which she mistakes for Steve. She unblocks the door and runs out, only to be startled by a complete stranger in Mrs. Voorhees. A friend of the Christie's, Danny. (laughs) I'm Mrs. Voorhees, a friend of the Christie's. She attempts to offer assistance to the frantic Alice. They head inside the main cabin so Mrs. Voorhees can see the body of Brenda. And Mrs. Voorhees feigns shock and surprise before going off on just a wonderful villain monologue here. Yeah, it's such a great reveal here. Yeah, she explains how the young boy that drowned in 57 was named Jason and how the camp counselors were too busy fornicating to keep a close eye on him. We see Mrs. Voorhees have visions of her drowning son calling out to her. The mask of sanity finally slips, as we see that Mrs. Voorhees is the one responsible for all of the bad things happening over the years. She's psychotic, with a vendetta not against a certain individual, but a place, which I find just so... Incredibly interesting. Yeah, the way she reminisces about Jason and what happened to him and giving the reason why she has such hatred towards the camp and the counselors. It's just so believable, you know, it and it fits with the story so well. It all just makes so much sense in the end. Yeah, because she also sees all of the would-be counselors as surrogates or proxies of the counselors who were actually responsible. And Alice runs for it as Mrs. Voorhees goes on the attack. She runs for the Jeep, but is startled by the corpse of Annie in the passenger seat. We get another fantastic jump scare when Steve's body comes swinging down, strung upside down from a tree, knife still embedded in his chest. and now we get one of the greatest extended chase sequences in slasher history as Mrs. Voorhees pursues Alice throughout the entire campground. And I love the touch of Jason speaking through his mother. Kill her, mommy. Kill her. Don't let her get away. Kill her, mommy. Kill her. (laughs) Mrs. Voorhees does get her ass kicked quite a bit here, though. You know... It's easy to kill someone when you can surprise them. And I guess it's harder to sneak up on the last person. Or maybe these killers just like to have a bit of fun. (laughs) But it never seems to quite work out for them, does it? (laughs) Yeah, I took it more as like, okay, here's the last girl. I'm going to have fun with her and trick her, you know? (laughs) Yeah, before long... They find themselves beside the lake, brawling over a machete, and Alice manages to get the upper hand. She runs over and retrieves the machete and runs towards Mrs. Voorhees with bad intentions, dude. (laughs) (laughs) She swings the machete at her, 
And she hits her so hard that she doesn't cut her head off. She knocks it off, Danny. <laughs> it falls over. <laughs> we do get, despite the bad beheading effect, we do get that great close-up shot of the headless Mrs. Voorhees clenching her fists while blood spurts from her neck. It's like her body was grasping for her head, like, where'd my head go? <laughs> she collapses, and our survivor, Alice, climbs aboard one of the canoes and floats out onto the lake. And the next morning, we see Alice resting in this canoe. She's dipping her fingers in the water. We see a squad car approach, and two officers step out and look out towards her. She notices the police when all of a sudden, this moss-covered, disfigured boy leaps from the water and grabs Alice. The canoe tips as she's pulled under. And then Alice wakes up. What do you think of this Jason fake-out jump scare, Danny? I'm sure you had to be aware of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I was aware of this. Mainly, I was aware of this jump scare with Jason at the end and Mrs. Voorhees being the killer. That's about it. And I think that's probably the most, the two most memorable parts of the film anyway. But yeah, I really like it because, you know, you have this great calming and victorious music with Alice on the boat and you have this beautiful lake shot with it reflecting the trees. And then you get that final jump scare with Jason coming out of the water, covered in moss, looking disgusting. And at this point in my fraternity career, I've seen plenty of horror movies that go with this final cheap jump scare. And it'll always be cheap to me. But I feel like this scene goes the extra mile, and it shows the aftermath of it. And it kind of explains it in-universe, which is when it be goes from being cheap to being really unique because you have Alice asking what happened to Jason what happened to that little boy you know and the cops are saying like what little boy like there was no little boy and it just adds this extra layer of mystique to the ending and in a way I think that kind of helped make the franchise become what it is you know it it didn't just stop at the Jason with the boat it went on and showed a little bit more and really made it interesting so i'm a big fan and i give them props for that awesome yeah i 100 percent agree with you and i too like the epilogue in the hospital and she's like what about the boy ma'am we didn't find any boy and then you get alice stating then he's still down there and then we cut to that peaceful look at the calm waters of crystal lake and then that's the end of our movie Classic, classic stuff. That is Friday the 13th. And it gives no indication either, like, if what Alice saw was real, if it was a hallucination or just a dream. It's like, what happened there? And just imagine if, like, this was the only Friday the 13th film ever made. Like, what would that mean? <laughs> you know, it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, it's great to speculate. I mean. I guess eventually, if there were no more, it would kind of become a cheap jump scare. But it's amazing to think, not only what this movie, but that final jump scare spawned, right? Yeah, totally. 
Well, regardless of all that, Danny, what did you think of the original Friday the 13th? So when you told me we were going to be covering Friday the 13th, I told myself I was going to go into it as if it just were a standalone movie. I knew all the twists already and was familiar enough with the franchise. And I also had heard from plenty of other people into the Friday the 13th franchise that this movie either sucks or at the very least is skippable. So I wanted to come at it from being as unbiased as I could possibly be. It's got great kills and a timeless setting that just oozes atmosphere. I mean, how can you not love Camp Crystal Lake as a setting? Especially the second half of the movie when it's just raining all the time and it's just causing a string of bad luck for all our characters. The movie may drag for some people in the middle. We do get some extended camp counselor humanizing scenes, but I think that's all fine because Friday the 13th manages to tell a unique enough story and has a mystery killer running through the whole film. If there's anything I could complain about, it would be that there isn't much in the way of like a red herring or interpreting who the killer might be. You really don't have any guesses or possible suspects, but that Mrs. Voorhees reveal is more than enough to make up for that because, like I said, it's just such a strong reveal. It ties the movie together and it just works so well. And that last scene with Jason is just iconic. And when you look at it as spawning an entire franchise, you can't not say this movie is legendary. And I enjoy this film for what it is. Awesome. Yeah, I think the word legendary is well-deserved and very high praise. And, you know, I agree. I was thinking the same thing because... Unlike Halloween, we don't have an established killer, but we also don't have a whodunit in this movie. We really just have a mystery, and that is very intriguing. Right on. Totally. And speaking of Mrs. Voorhees, did you find a favorite kill of hers? Well, my favorite kill, I gotta go with Annie. Good choice. The first, well, the first kill in 1980. <laughs> Right. I'm more of a fan of what this kill signifies for the movie. Like I said, it means that nobody is safe when Annie is just treated like this with her throat slit. And it is one of the few kills in this film that isn't off screen. We actually see the entire thing play out, which I find fun because, you know, Annie is led into this false sense of security as she hitches a ride for Mrs. Voorhees. And then as the Car speeds up, we see Annie getting more and more uncomfortable, and then having her jump out of the car is exciting and hurt her leg and try to limp away from the killer, and then she gets to that tree and has no idea if the killer's near or far, and then the killer reveals themselves, and Annie is pleading for her life, only to have her throat slit, and it looks great, and I just like what it means in the film, you know? I, after that point, I really didn't know who was going to be the final girl. So that's my favorite kill. Awesome. Great choice. And well said, man. 
So, Sean, lay it on us. The original Friday the 13th, do you have a favorite kill? Well, the kill happens to take place off screen, but my favorite kill and special effect in the movie is the axe to Marcy's face. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. When you see her body fall back and she slumps to the floor with that axe firmly embedded in her face, it's just brutal. Fantastic special effects by Tom Savini. Plus, this scene just embodies what slashers would eventually become during the imitator wave. Beautiful, scantily clad women being stalked by an unseen killer and then getting killed because they had their eye on the wrong set of balls, Danny. (laughs) No offense to Kevin Bacon. I'm sure his balls are fine. But that's the truth. (laughs) The survivors aren't the undersexed or undrugged. They're the ones who are paying attention. And Marcy is a great early example of that. Awesome. Great choice. Alrighty, man. Well, let's wrap up this Friday the 13th special with your favorite scene. Well, my favorite scene is when Mrs. Voorhees is revealed to be the killer. That's mine also, Danny. (laughs) We're on the same page here. Well, it's just played so straight that I just can't not love it. She just sells it so well, going from this concerned mother and becoming the unhinged Mrs. Voorhees that we know. And it's such a great reveal that our killer is not some crazy, hulking, forest psycho, but seemingly at one point, was a nurturing mother that just happened to turn into a murdering psychopath. And it really just plants the seeds for the rest of the franchise with this one scene. And again, I think it's legendary for that point alone. Look what you did to him! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it really comes down to Mrs. Voorhees' monologue for me. Like we've already talked about, Neither of us will ever be able to see this movie without the foreknowledge of the fact that Mrs. Voorhees is the killer, but clearly it had to be a great reveal in its time, and rightfully so. It's a good twist on Psycho, if you ask me, because it isn't the son, but the mother. And a female killer was, and is still rare, so... I have to imagine it was quite a fascinating surprise. And I just love how damaged and deranged an individual that Mrs. Voorhees really is. Because, like I said, here's a person that has a vendetta not against a specific person, but a specific place. And in having that vendetta, she finds a way to blame anyone who dares tread on that land for the tragedy that befell her with the drowning of Jason. And I also love when we hear Jason speak through his mother for the first time, and it just solidifies how off her rocker she really is. Classic, potent stuff. A really great reveal in slasher cinema history. Absolutely. Mrs. Voorhees, you're one of the best. Well, that was Friday the 13th, and that was our Friday the 13th special. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you come along for this years-long ride 
through one of the greatest franchises, not just in slasher or horror history, but cinema history. So that's going to do it for us, everybody. We're going to take a short summer break, but you can catch us where you always do on Friday, June 3rd. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate us, give us some ratings, help the show out, and I hope you have a great night.